Thank you for your welcome to get to know some of the members of the worship team and sound greeters and prayer teams. Uh, so it was uh, great to be here. And we are looking forward to sharing the word of God with you this morning. Um, just a little bit of uh, a background, just for a moment. Just this last week has been uh, for us personally a, a little bit of a uh, a trying time. Uh, Marlene's brother's uh, wife, Gladys, they live in Abbotsford, went into a uh, hospital for a, a rather routine procedure. And uh, I, I drove Danny into uh, uh, the Royal Columbia here. And uh, Gladys uh, went into a coma after this procedure. And uh, she remained in a coma for uh, the next six days, and they did an MRI and discovered that she had two major strokes, and she went home to be with the Lord on Thursday. And uh, the funeral is on uh, on Wednesday. So, if you could remember uh, Dan and his family and that time of grieving, they've been married a little longer than ourselves, and so this will be a major adjustment time for him as he begins another chapter of his life uh, on his own. And uh, so it's been a grieving time for us all. It's been a time of uh, just uh, waiting and trusting God. Uh, They served as missionaries in the Mali Republic for a number of years. And uh, Gladys was really uh, a lover of Jesus. And so we have real confidence that she is with the Lord. And that's great comfort in times like this. Uh, in this season of their life. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 1. And I want to begin reading in verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was uh, Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, which means Savior, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. And Mary answered simply, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. And at that point, the angel left her. What child is this 
who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet and anthems sweet, while shepherds watch are keeping. What child indeed. Think about it for a moment. As Christians all around the world, thousands, millions of us have just finished celebrating the birthday of Jesus. I suppose I'm as egotistical as most of us, but I seriously doubt if many people will remember my birthday 100 years from now, let alone 2,000 years from now. The question I want to pose this morning is this. Why is the birth of this child so special? And how should his birth impact our lives? Why is the birth of this child so special? And how should his birth and life impact our lives today? Early we read uh, the story of the announcement that the angel made to Mary. And now you will conceive in your room and bear a son and you will name him Jesus, which means Savior. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now there are two things that we need to keep in the forefront of our mind as we unpack this story. First of all, we need to see this announcement within the context of the prophecies found in the Old Testament scriptures. And now this is where the Jewish people really had an advantage over us. They were weaned on the Old Testament scriptures. Children heard the words of the Torah recited to them long before they could even read. They were familiar with the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of a Messiah, which means anointed one, the Christ, who would be a deliverer and set his people from, uh, from, uh, free from slavery and usher in a period of peace and prosperity for all. For example, in Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7, we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish all of this. And then again in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. This is all messianic language. It's talking about the coming of a promised heavenly being who will establish peace and rule over Israel forever. So the Jewish people in Jesus' day lived in hope. They lived with the expectation, perhaps in their day, the Messiah would finally arrive. Life in that day was difficult for the average citizen. They were living in an occupied country. 
They were being taxed to death by their Roman oppressors. The average family lived from hand to mouth, and that's the words of Jesus in his prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. A small group of freedom fighters, they're called zealots, and the Romans called terrorists, harassed the Roman troops. And in retaliation, the Romans predictably created violence against the innocent citizens of Israel. The average person in Jesus' day, I can't say it strong enough, hated Roman occupation. They hated the Romans. They longed to be free. Question in their mind, when will God come to the rescue? When will he answer our prayers for deliverance? How long must we suffer? When will the Messiah appear? So the message of the angel to Mary is clear. The long wait is over. The favor of God rests on you. You are about to become the mother of the Messiah. The promises are about to be fulfilled. Wow. Secondly, we need to interpret the angel's announcement to Mary in the context of the rule of Caesar Augustus. We are told that Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus. That's found in chapter 2, verse 1, where we read, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And at that time, the Roman Empire stretched from northwestern Europe as far as Great Britain, north to uh, Germany to encompass Germany, all the Mediterranean nations of the Mediterranean basin, and as far east as Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It was known as the uh, world empire of that day. And here's the important thing to notice. The titles that the angel used to describe the identity of this special child, the Messiah, were the very same titles used to describe the Roman Empire, Emperor Caesar Augustus. His titles were Savior, Lord, and Son of God. He was called Savior because he ended a bitter civil war that had raged for decades in the Roman Empire and created a period of unprecedented peace. He also claimed to be Lord and a Son of God. The message of the angel to Mary was both revolutionary and dangerous. You're going to give birth to the Messiah, and he will establish a kingdom that will rival that of Caesar Augustus. In fact, it will endure forever. Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. This document written by Luke would have been seen by the Romans to be subversive. And Luke was risking his very life in writing it. And you would be risking your life by embracing it. We're now in a position to unpack this passage of Scripture. 
In the sixth month, we're told, the angel sent from God came to a woman in Nazareth, a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And he was of the house uh, of David, and the virgin's name, we read, was Mary. The mention of the six months is a reference to the surprising pregnancy of her relative, probably uh, she was a cousin, Elizabeth, who is in her six months of pregnancy. And she would give birth later on to John the baptizer. A miracle, really, because Elizabeth was well past childbearing age. And when the angel told her husband John that his wife was pregnant, what do you think his reaction was? He rolled his eyes and he laughed. Not possible, he said. My wife is well past childbearing age. Mary lived at that time in the village called Nazareth. It was a tiny farming village of about 150, maybe 200, 300 people. It's a small community. Located in the hills 12 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee and far from the main trade routes. The peasant families who lived there eked out their living. They paid their taxes as good citizens and tried to live in peace. It was a conservative town, clinging to traditional Jewish culture and values in a world that had been radically affected by Greek thought and culture. The people who lived there were physically robust, strong-minded, practical, respectful of tradition, and extremely loyal to family. It was a town where everyone knew each other's business. Mary's pregnancy would have not gone unnoticed. It was the last place, really, where the Jewish people expected the Messiah to come from. The skeptics had a saying in those days, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Mary, however, was a remarkable woman, a teenager, probably no more more, uh, than Uh, 15 or 16 years of age. And she is pledged uh, to uh, Joseph. That meant that she had formally agreed to marry him, but the wedding had not yet taken place. And between the pledge and the wedding feast was a period, usually about six months to a year. And during that period, the couple were considered to be married and were called husband and wife, but they had never lived together and they had not slept together. And following the custom of that day, Mary would live with her parents and he would live with his parents. During the time, she would get ready for the, uh, the marriage feast and he would prepare a home, a room in his father's house to which he could take his bride once they were married. And after the public wedding, Mary and Joseph would live together as husband and wife. This was, without a doubt, the most exciting time in the life of this young woman. And suddenly an angel turns up and her whole world is turned upside down. The angel appears and says, Rejoice, favored one, the Lord is with you. And Mary is both terrified and confused. And I can understand her reaction. What's going on here anyway? The angel said, Don't be afraid, Mary. You're not losing your mind. 
here's the deal. God is honoring you. And she said, what? And you're going to be recipient of his grace. And you're going to give birth to a special child. He's going to be the Messiah. And you will name him Jesus, which means Savior. Mary's more confused than ever. She thinks in her own mind, you have to be kidding. I'm not officially married. I'm still a virgin. And I'm not stupid. I know where babies come from. But don't get me wrong. I believe you, but I have one question. Just one question. Just one question you need to answer. How in the world is this going to happen? I don't get it. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the one who is to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. Personally, I'm not sure she understood what that meant. Look, he says, if you want a sign, even in her old age, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. This woman who was labeled unable to conceive is now six months pregnant. You see, the angel said, nothing is impossible with God. I'm absolutely stunned by Mary's response. She said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. Think of that, about that for just a moment. Just ponder that, that response. You're 16 years of age, let's say at the outside. You're looking forward to being married. You're so much in love. And you're going about your daily routines. Perhaps you are doing the laundry. Perhaps you're at the well drawing water because there was no free ride for peasant girls in those days. Or perhaps you're in your room daydreaming about your coming wedding. And suddenly the the angel appears to you. He tells you that you're going to get pregnant and give birth to a son. And he's going to be the son of the most high God. And you are to give him the name Jesus, which means Savior. And when you ask, how is this possible? How can this possibly happen? He says, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit will cover you like a cloud and you'll end up pregnant. That's all there is to it. End of story. And what does Mary say? She says, okay, let's get on with it. I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. And then the angel departed. It's instructive to note that Mary doesn't doubt the angel's words, even though it must have sounded incredulous. That's believing the impossible. That's trusting God when the facts run against it. Without exaggeration, I could say that this is one of the greatest statements of faith in all of the Bible. And I have no doubt that over the next nine months, Mary asked herself many times, why me? Why did God tap me on the shoulder and choose me, an obscure peasant girl, in some out-of-the-way village as the chosen vessel to bring his son into the world? Why me? Now, there are probably a number of answers to that question that have nothing to do with Mary. But there is one answer that has everything to do with Mary. 
God chose her because she trusted him and he in turn trusted her. He, she trusted him and he trusted her. Profound. He knew she was willing to believe the impossible. He also knew that she was willing to pay the price of that belief. He knew her character. He knew she had the faith and stick to itness to bear a child out of wedlock in order to bring God's son into the world. Mary is a very remarkable woman. She's one of the heroes of the scriptures. And as Protestants, we probably haven't given her the honor that she really deserves. She is a remarkable young woman of faith. Mary said yes to shame and glory. She said yes to God's power. She said yes to the impossible. But Mary would soon realize that saying yes to God meant misunderstanding and public shame. In the future, her life would have times of happiness, but it would never be quiet again. Mary had no way of knowing how Joseph would respond to her pregnancy. Would he blow his top and walk out on her? Would he humiliate her in public? Would he divorce her? As the story turned out, Mary had every reason to worry about Joseph. He didn't blow his top or humiliate her in public, but he did intend to divorce her. Only an angel's intervention kept him from doing so. But that was just the beginning. Before it was over, Mary would experience heartache, opposition, slander, confusion, anguish, despair, and loneliness. And in the end, she would face the greatest pain a mother can endure when she stood beneath the cross and watched her naked son die before her very eyes. In conclusion, I would like to ask all of us a question. How willing are you and I, how willing are you to obey God and submit to his kingdom rule? N.T. Wright says, when you see the manger on a card or in a church, don't stop at the crib. See what it's pointing to. It's pointing to the explosive truth that the baby living there is already being spoken of as the true king of the world. The crib points to Jesus as the true king of the world. Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. Jesus is what? Lord and not Caesar. And I want us to pause for a moment and ponder that truth. With the birth of Jesus, a new kingdom was established. A kingdom without borders. A subversive kingdom which demands our unwavering allegiance and loyalty to the king. So the question is... When Jesus comes and taps you on the shoulder and calls you by name and says you are favored of God, how 
will you and I respond? What will we say? Will we say, yes, I am the Lord's servant? Let me be perfectly clear. To say yes to Jesus and his kingdom is a costly thing. Jesus made this clear when he said to his disciples, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. We see this all around the world today. John chapter 15, verse 20. Presently, uh, my wife and I have attended off and on a church which has partnered with a Mexican pastor who is working with young male adults in a maximum security prison in Mexico. Most of those inmates are members of one of the drug cartels operating in Mexico. And when one of those young inmates is released from prison, a member of their criminal organization they call family will be waiting for them outside the prison gate to welcome them back into the organization. So the message of this young pastor, Mexican pastor, that he delivers in prison to these inmates is very blunt. If you decide to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you need to be prepared to die. You cannot serve Jesus and the drug cartel. Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. And what about us? We live in a great, a great country. We have freedom to worship as our conscience dictates. No one is going to throw us into prison for following Jesus. As a country, we have a reputation for defending the rights and the freedoms of all who live within our borders. Furthermore, our country has been built on Christian values and principles. Personally, I love Canada. To me, it is the best country in all the world to live in. Maybe you agree. Uh, but I love Canada. But any loyalty I give Canada is loyalty I need to give to God and God alone. He's my king. I think Tony Campolo is right when he says, we might live in the best Babylon in the world, but it is still Babylon. And we are called to come out of her. Where does our loyalty lie? And what does it look like? I'm convinced to say yes to Jesus will turn our world upside down. It will lead to a radical reordering of our values, our priorities, and our finances. Why? Because the values and priorities of the kingdom of God are in conflict with the values of our consumer, power-oriented, secular society which is based on greed. And we can't serve two masters. It's impossible. Jesus said it. You'll either end up loving one and hating the other, but you can't do it. You have to choose. Jesus is Lord, and he demands absolute loyalty. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say, said Jesus in Luke chapter 8 or 6. So let me encourage us all, myself and yourself, to put aside our fears and ruthlessly decide to bring every aspect of our lives under his kingdom rule. Our business, our marriage, 
our sexual lives, our appetites, our thoughts, our goals, our priorities, our actions, our finances. And make no mistake about it, it will be a costly decision. We will need to crucify our egos, put away power politics, forgive our enemies, turn the other cheek, prefer others above ourselves, live generously, care for the poor and marginalized, speak for the weak and the voiceless, confront injustices, care for God's creation, and cease to measure success in terms of beauty and fame, numbers and money, social prestige and popularity. And in the church, we will have to denounce our dependency on control and replace it with humility, prayer, servant leadership, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. When the disciples were jostling for prominence in God's kingdom, Jesus did not say a word. He simply stripped off his outer garment, girded himself with a towel, and he washed his disciples' feet. And that's how we handle conflict in the church. The emblem of the Christian gospel is a towel. The great in the kingdom of God are those who are the servants of all. God's kingdom is power under and not power over. Invitation and not coercion. Service and not consumption. May God, by his spirit, give us the courage and the faith and the strength to trust him when he taps us on the shoulder and calls us into his kingdom. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for Mary. We thank you that when you called her, she said yes. And then she brought her whole life into obedience to that call. And so for myself, I pray that I'd be willing to do the same. Oh, Lord, help me to see things as you see them and to be obedient to you and make you my king in every circumstance of life. Amen.